back to the bin. Hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spatero and this time out I have a long-awaited guest appearance by Mr. John Wilson who I've been hoping to have on here for quite some time and finally we get a chance to, to do some chatting. How you doing, John? I am neither Scott nor Dr. Bill, but hopefully this will be a good episode anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, sometimes that starts it by being a good episode just by, just by not, just being, by not being them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I won't no, tell them you said that. <laughs> the risk is they're going to listen to this and then they're going to be mad at me. But, you know, it's well, you know, off of the course. What are so, they going to do, fire you? <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, Scott had to work later tonight because they both were, you know, obviously welcome to join us. Scott had to work later. And uh, Dr. Bill, up until this afternoon, was planning on joining us. But then he had some things going on at home. You know, sadly, things go on at home. It does really throw wrenches in the works when it does. Uh, but you know, sometimes we have to take care of things that don't have to do with comics or podcasting. So, yeah, you know, yeah, life gets in the way sometimes. Yeah. We haven't had a chance to talk since you stopped doing, uh, make hours Marvel, which, you know, I, I made no bones about it. I really enjoyed that because I am, you know, my, if you eliminated Marvel's silver and bronze age from the picture, I probably would not be a big comic fan. I gotcha. probably never would have gotten into it. So somebody who who decided to do a a show of the nature that you did, and the guy, you know, you guys got so far into it, uh, it was it was not nearly what I wanted, but a lot more than I ever could have hoped for. <laughs> yeah, that's basically how I felt about it too. Like I was amazed at how far we got, but I would have loved to have kept on going. Yeah, I, I mean, I was getting very very greedy, and I was hoping. You know, hoping to to see what you guys would have done with the Bronze Age had you been able to get there, and you were coming close to it. Yeah, we were getting. I think we got to the towards the end of 1968. No, towards the beginning of 1968, because a lot of stuff debuted in 1968 that we didn't get to. So we were we were in the middle of that year. It, yeah. we, we, that's 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 pretty far when you're covering every single Marvel comic. Absolutely, and, um, and you guys did a, the, You know, you did a nice job of it too. You you know, you gave. You know, pretty decent synopsis and, and, you know, I mean, it was in short order. You had to give a synopsis and, a, and discuss an issue, but it was, you know, it was, it was fairly well, you know, fairly inclusive of, of everything I'd want to hear in, in a show of that nature. So I, 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 I don't think I ever walked away from an episode disappointed. I, I seriously enjoyed it and was very saddened when you guys decided you couldn't do it anymore. Well, I appreciate that. I, uh, I had a good time doing the show and. Now I've got the Superman thing going on, which is lots of fun, but uh, but the Marvel show was great. Yeah, well, that's you know, I mean, you you've been doing the podcasting thing longer than I have, and uh, so you you've been you've been <laughs> looming on the fringes the entire time, plus some. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about it today. Whenever I started podcasting, I imagine when you started too. When you tell somebody nowadays I'm doing a podcast, their response is, "Oh, what kind of podcast?" Whenever I said. I'm doing a podcast when I started this thing. People said, what's that? Yes. Yes, I, that was my experience also. And it's it's funny because I actually opened, I had a Facebook page and I just, you know, it was just everything for Facebook. And then after I, I podcasted long enough, I decided, you know what? 
I'm separating my personal life from my podcasting life. So mm-hmm. I have two separate Facebook pages uh, because I not because so much that I'm worried about my privacy, but that more because my non podcasting, non comic geek friends didn't really have an interest in seeing that. And I would constantly be getting, what is that you're doing? What, what is that all about? And, you know, it's like, you know what? I don't need to deal with that. So I just, I just separated it and I, I, I felt like it was much better uh, to have kind of a focus on who I talked about what with. Right. Yeah. I get that because I'll, I'll get friend requests sometimes and I'll be like, I don't know who you are, but I haven't, I haven't done the whole separate pages thing mostly because like I have, have so many friends through the podcasting circles it'd be kind of hard to separate personal from podcasting life at this point. Yeah, no, it, it is. And, uh, you know, then I've had people from the podcasting world or from the comics world, either one, you know, friend me on my personal one. And, you know, I've accepted most of them, but I, I kind of feel like, eh, but, but you're the comic people. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so but whatever, you know, it's, it's all, all, it's all good. So I was actually a little surprised. I gave John the uh, the option, you know, what do you want to cover for this uh, episode? And I kind of just thought, you know, you, you ended the, the Marvel show. You're going to probably tell me two Marvel books that you looked forward to getting to, but you never got to. But no, <laughs> just just uh, <laughs> just just to to uh, take expectations and and. Turn them upside down. You picked a. You said you want to do something for Transformers and something for Superman. So very, very different from what I anticipated. But well, we, if you had mentioned Marvel, my brain probably would. I haven't. I haven't had a lot of headspace in the Marvel world of late. Um, that that read through has kind of been put to the sidelines for a while while I focus on Superman and then some other stuff. Um, I need to get back to it because it's it's you know the Silver Surfer is just waiting to be read. But um. But yeah, I, I've been doing a lot of Transformers reading lately, and so I thought, hey, I'll pull a Transformers comic. I had no idea. How much Transformers exposure do you have? No, I had little, because you, you got to keep in mind, I'm also older than most of the people in our community. Um, so, you know, Transformers was not a thing when I was a kid. Okay. Uh, I was, you know, it was kind of in between, you know, when I became an adult and when I had my son. Uh, Transformers was kind of big in that window, but then, you know, when they came out with the Transformers movies, my son was in the prime age for that. So I think he and I went to see the first three of them in the movies together. And then by the third one, I was kind of disappointed with what they were doing with it. I I just, Mm -hmm. I felt like they could have been so much better than they were. And that's without having the investment in the whole, you know, world of that. Uh, so I can only imagine the people who were invested in what they might've thought, Although, you know, those movies have made a ton of money, so maybe I'm wrong. Uh, well, I, but that's really my exposure. Yeah, I like to find stuff that I can enjoy in most of those films, but I do agree they have diminishing returns. The first one is, is my favorite. Um, I think it does the best at what those films were trying to do. Um, and, of course, I... I grew up with Transformers. I had the toys. I watched the cartoons. I saw the animated film in the theaters. Um, and, you know, as most of us probably do, I you know left my toys behind. 
in you know my later teens, early twenties. Uh, but then there was a time when I found out they were making Transformers comics again after all these years. And I think a lot of people of our generations were growing older and you know taking the stuff that we loved when we were younger and doing new things with them. And, and for, for a lot of people, that was Transformers. So I started reading Transformers comics. Uh, and I haven't been a big follower over the years, but in the last like a year or two, I've been trying to you know kind of catch up on a lot of the stuff that I've missed in that world. And so um, IDW, coincidentally, they just lost the license. But in the mid-2000s, IDW was starting up a Transformers line of comics and uh, they had this um, interconnected series of miniseries that were mostly written by the same person. There was some kind of, you know, nonlinear storytelling that might not have been as accessible to the casual reader. But the, the, the people who, like, take the time to get super nerdy about it and, like, follow all the details um, – probably got a lot more out of it. And around the time of the issue we're talking about, that writer had quit the books. And so they had to figure out a new direction to go with, with a new creative team. And the first thing they did was a series called All Hail Megatron, which is basically, let's take the classic setup of the Autobot Decepticon war. And they've been fighting on earth, largely in secret because, you know, robots in disguise and the Autobots have lost off-panel, and this is what happens next. So basically, this book opens with the Decepticons having won the war. The Autobots are in hiding back on Cybertron, and Megatron's basically rolling out his conquering invasion of Earth. And that's what we've got going in here. So is that enough backstory, do you think, going in before we talk about what's actually in this book? Well, it gives me a, a basis for uh, for looking at it with a little bit of understanding of what's going on, because I'm not going to lie, I was confused. Okay, so yeah, so the book opens with your your all-star Superman-style four-panel recap of the backstory. Um, you've got a civil war, a world in ruins, we've got pictures of the uh, the war on Cybertron, and then a ship flying away from the planet an unsuspecting planet that is, of course, Earth, and a new battleground where you have the Autobots and Decepticons fighting on Earth. Now, um, and the, the cartoons, of course, happen in the 80s. This is a modern-day setting, so the war hasn't been going on that long. Uh, and it's been a year since that all started. So we start in New York City. Lots of really cool shots of people just being in New York, doing New York things. And these green construction vehicles start rolling into Times Square. And Transformers fans will immediately recognize the Constructicons. Uh, whenever they debuted, their cool thing as toys was that the six smaller robots combined together to make the bigger robot named Devastator. And that was really cool in the cartoons. It was really cool with the toys. It doesn't play into this particular issue because in this version of the continuity, they haven't actually invented the combining technology yet. So they're just six themed robots. So they're ro giant robots talking to people. They're like, hey, human creatures, we come in peace. You know, we're going to be so awesome on your planet. And they look at each other. Nah, just kidding. And they start shooting people. They start killing humans. 
and everyone quickly realizes this is not the peaceful alien visitation. This is actually really, really, really terrible. Um, the Seeker Jets, Starscream, Skywarp, and Thundercracker, they fly in, they transform into robots, they start shooting stuff up, and, um, you know, Starscream's ranting because Starscream thinks he's so awesome, and he thinks that, you know, he can really impress Megatron by their job here. Megatron shows up, and Starscream's like, hey, we've been doing all this destruction for you, Megatron, we didn't expect you to show up so soon. And Megatron's like, you call that destruction? And he has a great line. As always, Starscream, you talk big when you are, everything about you is small. As he blows up skyscrapers and causes towers to fall. So uh, um, the army scrabbles a couple of fighters. We've got these two fighter pilots named DJ and Andy. They fly into, they think the whole thing's a hoax. Giant robots, who ever heard of such a thing, right? And they fly in. Now, it turns out um, there are actually giant robots and so they attack with missiles megatron gives a a, a shout to soundwave who's the the guy who turns into the tape deck and i guess soundwave turns on some sort of force field or something because the missiles fly towards the septicons and they like when they get close they skew off in uh, random directions so they don't hurt the decepticons at all small arms fire doesn't seem to do anything to them again it looks like it's hitting a force field um and so Megatron's like, okay, the Autobot, the humans had their chance. Now we're going to fight back. So the jets turn, the jet, you know, Decepticons turn back into jets. They fly into the sky. Soundwave launches his uh, flying tapes, the two birds. The Insecticons that can fly jump up, and they start basically destroying these fighter jets. So uh, you get some drama because two of the fighter pilots we've seen a little bit. One guy has a picture of his, uh, his partner. Not sure if it's girlfriend or wife uh, in his uh, jet. And so there's some sadness there because they hit his jet. He's going down. And so he basically is able to steer his jet into Megatron. Megatron is like insulted. How dare you? I am Megatron. And the jet just like explodes a handful of feet away from Megatron's chest. And there's this cool shot of him walking out of the flames. So he's cackling with power he has gone mad with his very large amount of power and while he's uh, glorying in the destruction of the humans and their city we cut scene to cybertron prowl is walking into a dead city with uh, several of his friends looking very battered and bruised and in hiding he has some sort of uh pad electronic pad that looks like like it's getting information or a signal from Earth or whatever. He walks in. He throws it to the side. He goes out to see Jazz. Prowl and Jazz have always been Optimus Prime's, you know, number one and number two officers. Um, and they just look at each other and are sad. And in the next room, Optimus Prime is lying on a sick bay bed with his chest hanging open, apparently dead or the close thing to it to be continued. So this is their big relaunch issue of, okay, new creative direction. What do you think? And uh, yeah, Decepticons have won. Okay. The confusion I had was the fact that it said one year later, I was a little confused because it seemed like it was a brand new attack. Uh, And then Mm -hmm. at the end, I wasn't sure that was Optimus Prime. 
Uh, I wasn't sure exactly what that was, to be honest with you. If that was the good guys, if that was the bad guys, if that was, you know, I, I wasn't certain one way or the other. But I guess if you have a familiarity with the, the you know, basic makeup of the characters, you wouldn't have that confusion. Uh, right. But I do think there's kind of, <clears throat> there's a little bit of an assumption that you kind of are familiar with this uh, property coming into it, uh, which is not a bad thought because most of the people picking this up are going to be. But I think it, it could have done with just maybe a, a, you know, a little bit of prose at the beginning to kind of just give you a background as to what it was. Yeah. Or maybe even at the end to say, you know, if you just read this and you're not familiar with it, let's explain to you what just went on. Uh, you know, I mean, the, ba- the battle itself is is pretty cool and that's easy enough to follow. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to start by praising it. I think the, uh, the I, I like the artwork in this. I think it's it's pretty sharp. Uh, it is a little cartoony at points, but that is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's 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 cartoony in the effect in the to the extent that I could see this being easily animated, um, but it's not cartoony like silly cartoony. Right. Um, but I think you know the the, the battle and and the just the the awesome nature of these bad guys and, and you know what they can do. Uh, so so easily to earth is all very very well represented and a lot of it is represented visually uh, as opposed to you know and I think most of us go with the show us don't tell us uh, but the dialogue does a good job of giving you you know just kind of the feelings that are going on you know that these guys don't even think this is for real uh, and they're coming out there to to battle and then you know one of them ends up ends up dead before it's over or at least I assume he's dead uh you know, and, and, and Megatron is definitely totally badass in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a pretty good read. It's it's a quick read, but, you know, it's it's that part of that era. I assume this is a six-issue mini before you're done with it. Uh, uh, it's actually, like, it was it started as 12, and, and then there were also four Coda issues. So it's 16 issues total. I, I generally find that, more or less from you know from sometime in the 1990s forward uh i would almost prefer to read these issues in trade than to you know to read one issue at a time because most of them are very quick reading and and we criticize that a lot uh but i think if you're reading it in trade and you're getting all six issues it's not so bad it's it's not that that criticism kind of loses a lot of its uh, edge you know it Mm -hmm. it blunts it a lot uh, then, then my criticism goes to the hey, I got to pay you know twenty dollars, thirty dollars for a story, which is is a little much. Uh, you know, when when you used to get you know you you're getting effectively in six issues what you probably got twenty years earlier in two. Uh, so, you know, the, the the amount of money you're paying for the content you get is a little skewed. But that said, I've bought most of my trades. You know, at, at comic shows where they're like, you know, oh, 25% for the trades. You know, so I'm, I'm not spending original, you know, cover price anyway. So, I, I you know, my, my criticism is, is kind of self-serving to an extent. Uh, but I, like I what? said, just to bring it back, if, if you're reading it in trade, just, you know, finances aside, I, do, I find these to be a much more entertaining read usually. Yeah, I remember as I was going through my my superman reading of the 60s and 70s you go from you go from eight page stories with multiple stories in one book to single issue stories that were the story fills the entire book to occasional 
two parters to occasionally like three or four parters before like you know the eighties and nineties you get like you know sort of ongoing storylines and one of the things I think you know a one issue story versus a two issue story with a one issue story you kind of have to move quickly into the threat and resolve that there's not always a lot of time to to develop your 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 side characters with a two issue story you can spend the first issue building the threat up like even largely in the background while your character is living their life and dealing with with you know relationships and subplots and then you can have things build to a head at the end of that issue and the second issue is mostly dealing with the threat um and so you can kind of have that balance in your two issues you it 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 works really well um but you're right with with the 90s and later you spend a lot more time on your characters interacting with each other aside from the threat and then i think mid 2000s and later you have also a lot of tendency to just take every scene and expanding it a lot just visually without necessarily adding a lot of story but just taking what's there and spending a lot more time looking at it. And that does make for a very, very quick read. Um, whenever I'm reading through a lot of modern comics, I'll, I'll often do like, you know, like you said, those trade style reading and I'll just do like a chapter a day and let it, let it spread out over that. And right. And, and I think that works well slowly that way. I think that really yeah. does work well, but you know, just to again, bring us back to your uh, make ours Marvel days. You were, I think you were just approaching the era. I don't think you quite reached it when Marvel decided to uh, go with one-and-done stories, thinking that somehow they were serving their audience better. And if, if you look at those stories closely, they really did suffer for the lack of characterization. You know, they got a rush to get the villain uh, and the precarious situation developed really quickly. And then, you know, you got to get it resolved by the end of the issue. So, you know, you, you have whatever, 20, 22 pages, and you're mm-hmm. really trying to cram a lot in there. Whereas when you have two and three issue books not only do you can you develop it the way that you just said but you also can throw in little teasers or little things uh little mysteries to to make you uh wonder where you're gonna go uh as to a storyline that's coming up you know two issues from now or three issues from now just you know little little things to keep you going i think uh you know the burn claremont uh, x-men books were were masterful at doing that uh but, you know, the, the, there's something to be said for that. I think that was lost to the trades because now you had to go with the six issues. And also you had a situation where creators would come, do their six issue arc and then leave. So you wouldn't have that continuity that you have, you know, that you had in the past when, you know, when a creative team came, you you had at least the hopes that they'd stay around for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish I had chosen something you were more familiar with but at the same time i it's interesting to hear how this reads for not just um maybe a transformers fan who's out of touch with the current comics but somebody who's not even that that in touch with the transformers continuity and so you know ostensibly idw wants to bring in readers and so with this big new number one push of the transformers all hell megatron um it sends from what you're saying that like this may not have been that successful in landing readers who were unfamiliar with the property. If, if, if somebody's saying, okay, sell me on the whole transformers idea and they picked up this issue, there might not be enough substance to it to keep them reading. 
think you you know I think your 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 take on it is fairly accurate, and I think it, I think it could have been fixed uh, with just adding something in there to familiarize because because you, you want to play to the audience that you're going to have too. You you know that probably ninety percent of your audience is going to be people who grew up with the Transformers or are growing up with the Transformers as you speak. Uh, so they're going to be familiar with this, and you don't want to pander too much to that 10% that aren't familiar with it. But you can probably throw in almost like, uh, I don't know when they started doing it, but remember when Marvel started putting uh, kind of a page at the beginning where they'd have text where they'd explain mm-hmm. what had happened previously? I think a page like that would serve this book really, really well for somebody who's not too familiar with the product, but sees the cover and says, that looks pretty cool, let me pick it up. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of miss that era. Like, if you're going to have comics that are constantly a never-ending story, having you know a bit of a recap at the beginning is kind of nice. Unless the writer himself is skilled at, you know, keeping you going, keeping you informed as you go. Which, you know, when Marvel was doing the never-ending Fantastic Four series, where there was hardly ever a close in the action, they did that. They had you you know you don't know what's going on but we're going to tell you what you need to know as we go through this issue yeah and, and, some, and even with the decompressed storytelling that we're doing nowadays i feel like there are still some writers who can do that there's some sometimes and you, you know i mean if you read enough comics you see some of them are very very clumsy with their exposition and it's like oh my god look at look at this and some of them are really really clever in the way they work the ex- exposition in and it sounds like you know very very realistic dialogue which is you know i'm, I'm always impressed when i see that mm-hmm but um i think this could have done well with maybe like a, a prelude issue kind of giving you the the setup where megatron sends these people to earth or these people these these uh decepticons uh to earth or something something along those lines maybe like a, you know kind of almost like the pre-title sequence and a lot of that had been from the you know from the previous sequence of miniseries like the, this is this is a new creative direction but it does technically pick up on the previous continuity so people who'd been reading transformers would even though the story is going in a new direction would at least you know know how that we're on earth and everything else um but but yeah i agree that for a completely new reader those four panels at the beginning are just not quite enough information uh you don't know who these characters are but i do i mean some of the things that i love about it um, I really like the Constructicons just rolling into the street. Uh, I think that if you're in a big city, you don't expect to see big construction vehicles rolling through Times Square. Um, it seems like there's always construction going on somewhere, but it's never like big vehicle construction. It's like, you know, people with equipment construction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having that be a visually, you know, unexpected thing. Plus, you know, the fact that, oh, they're green. That means that the Constructicons, that's, that adds to it. Um, I liked the uh, banter at the beginning where they, you know, pretended to be nice for a second. And they're like, no, we're just having a laugh. <laughs> yeah, they didn't hold up that deception for very long. No, 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 no. For being Decepticons, they just kind of, human creatures of Earth, we come in peace. We come to you to preach the message of unity, cooperation, and goodwill between our races. Ours is a message of kindness. And then they start laughing. And, yeah, and it's almost like a, 
blah-ha-ha Justice League moment, you know, it's just like, that. no, no, not really. Um, you know what I like about that? Not not necessarily that sequence, but the, as the sequences develop, is they come and, you know, they're dwarfing the people. Then the second wave comes uh, and th- they kind of dwarf those. And then Megatron comes and he dwarfs that group. So by the time Megatron comes, you have reason to kind of accept the scope of how large he is. Oh, wow. You know, you're right. And the framing and the 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 uh, angles of looking up at these guys increasing as you go through each. Yeah, you're right. Because if you just like, started like with that. Megatron, you know, you're going to say, oh, yeah, he's really big. But to have it kind of gradually build up as you're going along, mm-hmm. I think it becomes even more impressive by the time he comes. And naturally, you know, anything after 1990, he's got like a huge gun in his arm. Right. So, but well, he 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 was the original huge gun because he had that in a in eighty uh, eighty four. What's funny, and my son always got a kick out of this, um, is the cannon on his arm when he's a robot is the sighting scope on top of the gun when he's a pistol. So like it's a lens that you look through when he's in one form. But it's a fusion cannon when he's in another form, and that shouldn't work at all. There's nothing about that that makes sense. <laughs> but it's it's a comic, it's a cartoon, so you go with it. Oh yeah, you know, I don't I don't ask for the science to totally make sense in books. I just <laughs> ask for it to be consistent. Right, right. That's that's all I ask for, and and you know, more often than not, I I do get my wish. But I think if I you know if I was truly trying to uh, break things down scientifically, it would just make my head hurt. I do wonder, since this was like, I forget the year, 2008-ish, Megatron shoots down a skyscraper in New York City. Yeah. And you remember 2008. I thought of that too. Is that You know, 9-11 was five minutes ago. Yeah. I was thinking that when I read this, that, you know, at first, like for a second, I, I was getting my dates mixed up in my head and I thought, oh, this is before 9-11. But no, it's about, you know, seven years later. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it's it was still fresh. So it, it's 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 a gamble to put out a book that has that, because I could see if you're playing to an audience of, you know, younger people, I could see parents being offended by that and saying, I don't want you reading this. Right. And probably choosing the visual of the building falling over like a tree versus it collapsing upon itself was probably a, a deliberate choice, or at least I can say it being a deliberate choice. Um, Cause you want, you probably want to avoid triggering imagery. <laughs> well, you do have the imagery though of in that same shot, which is a pretty impressively drawn shot, but you have the smoke billowing up kind of the way it did. Mm, yeah, that is yeah. that is reminiscent a little bit. And you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna try and put anything, you know, logically realistic in there, you should expect to have that. But it it does conjure those images in my mind. I think that Transformers when Transformers does human characters well. I like that they're in there playing a part. Not every version of Transformers has to have humans, and certainly some versions of Transformers that have had humans, the humans have been kind of, you know, crap characters. But, um, you know, introducing us to these two fighter pilots at the beginning and 
to be honest, in my reread of Transformers, I have not read much past this issue, so I forget now if uh, the one guy who survives this, if he actually goes on to play a part. I know that they do bring in some some other human characters for this, um, but you know we we connect with these two guys, you know. In this, in the the fighter squadron that goes up, we take a moment to connect with two of the pilots, and I think that helps to add some gravitas to the story and just some emotion to the destruction. Oh, absolutely! I think that's. I think it's. Just, it's. It, it. I think there's a gamble being ta- made there too, because uh, you know you you do run the risk of people being a little bothered by you killing off one of two human characters that you introduce in the story. Uh, right. But I think there is enough emotion brought to the surface on it that it makes you want to see, okay, how are they going to take Megatron out of this? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it makes you want to see, it makes you, you know, it makes you feel like, first of all, it, it, it does kind of the standard thing that you need to do in these stories. It makes the threat seem insurmountable and it makes you wonder how are they going to take care of it? And then, they kind of give you the clue at the end by showing you the lifeless body of Optimus Prime. And, uh, you know, again, I wasn't 100% sure that that's who that was. I mean, I am familiar with him being a character, but I didn't know enough of uh, what his physical appearance was to know if that was him until you confirmed it for me. But I think, you know, if I were a big Transformers fan, I would be excited by seeing that. And even as a non-Transformers fan, it does make me curious to see, okay, where are they going to go and how are they going to resolve this? And and I assume if if you're going on going, you're not going to totally resolve it, but you're going to have to, you know, you you, you do it in, in, you know, you're going to have to have the humans battle back at some point or the, uh, you know, the Transformers uh, battle back and, and at least you know, protect the humans with, you know, however you're going to do it, but you're going to have to have some level of success in defending earth. And the question is, how are you going to do it? And uh, right. this this book does raise enough questions to make you say, hmm, I'd like to see how they do it. It does feel a little hopeless, but in, a, in an interesting, you know, it raise the questions, how are things going to come back? It, it feels very stark. And um, the first time I read this three years ago, it's actually why my son didn't want to continue reading on after a handful of issues is because he didn't like that the bad guys were on top so much that the good guys were having to struggle so hard to come back from what's happened to them. Hmm. And uh, he found it a little too much after a while. Of course he was, you know, single digit ages at the time, seven, eight, nine, I forget when we read this together, but, um, but yeah. So overall I thought this was, you know, for a Transformers fan who knows the franchise, Franchise, this would probably have been a really big grabber, even if you hadn't been reading Transformers comics up to this point. I think this would have gotten gotten your attention. The the one storytelling problem I have with it is he, Megatron says, Soundwave, do your thing, and suddenly they're invincible to everything the humans can throw at them. And I don't think that I know what Soundwave can do that would make that happen. <laughs> he does communicate and he does the robots in his chest. There's nothing else that I know about him. So I think they probably explain it in a later issue. Like I said, it's been a while since I've read the later issues. Um, but 
other than that, um, I really, really did like this issue, which is why I wanted to bring it to the, uh, to the episode. Um, just I'm flipping through in the shots of the jets flying toward each other and um, sky warp turning from jet to robot in mid air while he's in the guy's sights. That's just a really, really cool sequence. Um, but anyways, yeah, so this, yeah, this, this all hell Megatron. This, this is, you know, having had a chance to discuss it with you, I think I have a greater appreciation than I did walking in here, but even walking in, while I was a little confused by certain aspects of the story, I did find it to be an entertaining read. But I think having kind of brought it through and discussed it, now I'm more curious to see, all right, where's this story going to go? Now, I say mm-hmm. that on this show so often. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 I, and when I say it, I always mean it. But there's so many times when I say it and then I never get around to reading more. So I don't know if I'm going to. Uh, but... I certainly am not opposed to the idea. This this book was entertaining enough that that I, you know, if I was sitting here with the uh, trade on my lap, I could tell you I would I would finish reading it, no question. Well, good. But I feel like I have done my work. You, you have. You 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 can you can walk off into the sunset feeling that you've uh, you've accomplished something here. <laughs> but you know, I mean, overall, I thought the uh, I thought the artwork was. Really, I thought it was pretty dynamic. I, I think, and, and you know, part of it is what I was talking about is the just raising the scale and and making these uh, threats seem more and more and more serious as it goes along. And I think a lot of that is in the the storytelling through the artwork. Um, I think and I, sh- I should probably say the art in this is by Guido Guidi, uh, and and the Italian name that I don't know, know that well. But um, if we're going to hail the art, we should definitely. I forgot to say the credits at the beginning of this, but Shane McCarthy wrote it, Guido Gui arted it, Josh Burcham colored, uh, Neil Uyataki and Chris Maori lettered, and Denton J. Timpton did the editing. Yeah, I can tell you, honestly, I'm not familiar with any of those names, but I do like what they did here. Uh, the, the book has, mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, five covers, I guess, you know, all various versions, you know, various uh, covers that it came out with, which, you know, I'm, I'm never happy about that. But I, I would just say the the primary co- cover, uh, the first one, cover A, uh, which is by Klaus Schwerinski, uh, very sharp. I like it a lot. I think it, it serves a purpose. And it goes to if, if Dr. Bill were here, he'd say, well, Paul's not going to like this because it's got an all white background. And that is something that <laughs> I, I point out very often that I don't like. But in this instance, I think there's enough. Uh, contrast between the image because the image is kind of dark uh, and and that white that I think it, it, it really just kind of draws your eye to it. The alternate covers mm. uh, they, they don't grab me quite as much. None of them really do the trick for me the way that the primary one does. Uh, the B cover feels like uh, a visual design student mm-hmm. um, and actually the the style of the B cover, is the style of all the B covers throughout the series. They, they keep doing covers that are after that motif. Um, the A covers continue to be, you know, various. Um, but I, I kind of laughed when I saw the, uh, the killing joke. Oh cover. yeah. Yeah. Megatron that's that's the, the picture uh, with the, with the Decepticon camera. That's the retail exclusive cover. Right. Uh, and that's the, the, well, the cover, a cover, R-I-A and R-I-B 
Aurel by Schwerinsky, Sherwinsky. Uh, cover B, which is the one that you said, you know, is kind of a, uh, it's more, it's more, more, uh, design than anything else. That's by Trevor Hutchison. And then the killing joke takeoff is by Casey Collar. Again, names that I'm not familiar with, but I do, you know, they do nice work. I'll give them that. That, um, that camera he's holding, you couldn't buy those. It's actually three separate robots that combine into one and you couldn't buy them in stores. You could only get them through a send away. Um, and I never did the send away, so I never had those guys, but, uh, but that is an actual transformer toy that he's holding. Hmm. That's cool. So you want to grade this? Uh, yeah. What's our scale? Scale is this, this should fall right into your, into your wheelhouse. It's the A through F grading. We do cover interior art story and then overall. And I always feel compelled to say that the overall does not have to be, uh, the equivalent of the individual parts because sometimes the total is more than the sum of its parts and sometimes the total is less than some of its parts. Um, well, the reason I chose this issue is because I really, really like it. Um, seeing it through an unfamiliar person's perspective, I can see that it may have had some flaws in reaching a larger audience, but I think that for what it was trying to be, I think it did a really, really good job. So I'm going to give it A on story and A on art. Um, I really, I really dug it. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be really just very uh, objective as opposed to subjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, objectively, I think the art is really sharp. I don't know if it's quite an A to me. I think it might be like a B plus. Uh, okay. But, it, you know, it's it's very clean, but it's also dynamic. You know what? I'm going to I'm gonna say an A minus. I want to pump it up from the B a little, making an A minus. Uh, it, it's really very close to as good as I think you could do this particular type of story. Uh, I, don't, I don't see any panels in this where I think, well, that one they should have done differently. So that's, you know. It's 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 really solid, and I think the storytelling is is very well done. And again, I think you know even the imagery is well done. The story itself, if you're familiar with these characters, I I think no doubt it's probably an A. Somebody coming in and trying to figure out what's going along going on as they're reading it, it's probably you know drops it down a little bit, and you know, but it's still good and it was still enjoyable to read just the same. So I'm going to say a B for me, and if you're a Transformers fan, then an A. Uh, and overall, I'll mm-hmm. give the book a B plus. All right. So now. Well, I'm, I'm glad you were able to enjoy it some, even if it wasn't really your wheelhouse. Yeah, but again, having had a chance to discuss it, I am kind of inclined to continue it if the if the situation presents itself to me. So good, good, good. the other thing John had said to me was that he's kind of in a Superman mode of late. So I said, okay, I'm going to pick a Superman book, but I don't want to just do the run of the mill Superman. And, you know, anybody who's listened to me enough knows that I love me some Jack Kirby. Uh, so I went to Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 141 from September of 1971. Now this is, uh, you know, right off the bat, just looking at the cover, you know, it's a strange issue. Uh, I've had kind of a, uh, a desire to own the Kirby fourth world books. And I own precious few of them. This is one of the few that I do own. 
but you know, okay. when, when I see them in the not expensive racks, I, you know, I will continue to pick them up. But, uh, the, the cover shows Superman and Guardian on two sides and they're running towards the reader. Behind them are Jimmy Olsen and, uh, Goody Rickles, uh, who is just makes me just scratch my head. Uh, and Superman and Guardian seem to be carrying this uh, circle with Don Rickles' actual photograph inside of it. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, you know, you, you don't you don't have to go too far before you realize this is going to be a kind of a weird book. Uh, it's written and penciled by Jack Kirby, uh, penciled by Vince Coletta. So, you know, we run hot and cold on Vince Coletta, and I do not think this is one of his better jobs. But we'll get to that in, in a moment. And I'm going to give you the synopsis from the Dick, from the uh, DC wiki uh, because I get lazy. Clark Kent is almost taken to apocalypse by the UFO, which is a trap of dark seeds, but is rescued by Light Ray and sent back to Earth. Morgan Edge is visited by Don Rickles, but Jimmy Olsen and Goody Rickles appear in his office and are about to combust from the pyrogranulate. The Golden Guardian appears, having forced Ugly Manheim to give him the antidote, and cures Jimmy and Goody, having already cured himself and the Newsboy Legion. Don Rickles, maddened by the happenings, hitches a ride out of Edge's office with two members of the police bomb squad. Now, I mean, that, that is really giving you a short version of the, the story, but... If you remember earlier in this episode, I talked about being a little confused by the Transformers. That was nothing <laughs> compared to reading this story. So have you read 139? Have you read the story that comes before this? Uh, yes, but a, quite, okay. a, quite a while ago. And I don't remember the All exact right. sequence of events. But, you know, I've, I've said so many times that, I mean, I love Kirby's imagination. And uh-huh. I did have the good Good, the pleasure of uh, actually having some interaction with Kirby uh, by writing to him. And, and I didn't even remember my, my cousin re- uh, reminded me that we actually met him at a, a con in New York in the 1970s. Uh, he, he, I, you know, I think he was a great man uh, and he had an imagination that was kind of unparalleled, but I think he always needed somebody like Stan to just kind of reel him in a little bit. Because his writing ability didn't match his imagination, uh, and, mm. and it, you know he he needed somebody to say, well, how about you do this here, and how about you do this here, and and you know what, I'm going to dialogue it, and I'm going to add just a little bit of exposition here, so people know where the hell you're going with this thing, because uh, because he would just kind of come up with these things, but you could see when you're reading this, if nothing else, you know he he's got some far out ideas. Uh, some of the artwork, you know, he, he definitely liked to play with things. He, he had, you know, we, we have the opening page pages uh, are the, you know, this this combination of artwork and photo. I don't even know what you want. He to call loved it. his photo collages. Yeah, but it, but it, it, it I where it often wouldn't work for most artists. I do think it works for Kirby. Uh, These are some of his better ones. I, I, I'm not. Not a fan of his first attempts. I don't think it works very well at all in those early Fantastic Fours, but they get better. He gets better at the idea, and this works really well. I think it does a good job making space, bizarre, other-dimensional space happen in this issue. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you have some certain artists, since usually 
you know, it's the usual suspects, but certain artists just had an ability to to create these far off places that you say, okay, that makes sense to me in my mind, even though it really makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, and Kirby, mm-hmm. Kirby was definitely one of them. Steve Ditko was another. Uh, you know, and there's there's a few others that would would certainly fo- you know fill that bill. Uh, the choice of having Don Rickles in here just perplexes me to no end. Uh, and, and you know what, he, he really needed, I, I have no idea if, if Don Rickles was even aware that this was going on. He probably was like, yeah, yeah, use my image. How much money do I get for that? Because uh, it really would have been good to have him dialogue his own character. Because it doesn't yeah. feel like Don Rickles to me when I'm reading the character. The, uh, it feels like somebody trying to do Don Rickles. Yeah. I, I have an appreciation for Don Rickles that he he really cracked me up when I watched stuff. There was a, a time, probably about a year ago or so, I found myself looking on YouTube and watching old clips of him on The Tonight Show and, and such. He he really was a funny guy. Uh, but but you don't you don't get that from this as, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you you get like you get sort of the feeling for what kinds of stuff he might do, but yeah, when I read this issue um, a few years ago for the first time, I didn't know what a Don Rickles was. I guess you know the high points of his career were before my time. Um, I mean, this issue came out before my parents even met, but uh, but I did look him up and I did you know watch several clips to get a feel for who he was and what he you know what his whole thing was and you know whenever he finally shows up in the story everyone's like insult me don insult me because he was just really good at you know throwing the one lines at people um what i think is hilarious is that there's an entire issue of this story the previous what's actually two issues back because 140 was a giant size reprint um where the character is a don rickles lookalike who just happens to work in the research department at GBS. And so there's an issue. It's basically an issue with Don Rickles, but it's not Don Rickles. It's a Don Rickles lookalike. So in this issue, you have the Don Rickles lookalike, Goody Rickles, meets the actual Don Rickles. There's like, what? where did you get this idea from, Jack? This is this is bonkers. This is bizarre. Absolutely. Why? <laughs> like, you know, where do you get this idea from and... and... What made you think? Let me run with it, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's 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 it really is crazy, and and you know I even even in you know 1971, I'm not sure the average kid would say, hey, Don Rickles is in this book. Let me get let me pick it up. Although this right. is this is an era, you know, or it's an era slightly after, you know, when you'd have like Jerry Lewis comics and stuff like that. So it's not that far fetched to to do that. I was trying to think today. If you were going to do something like this today, who would you have in the comic? And the closest thing I could come, he's, he's nothing like Don Rickles, but I'm trying to think someone who's at that level of fame. Uh, and, and I came up with Alec Baldwin. If you put Alec Baldwin in a comic now, and would my question is, would that attract a young audience? And I'm thinking, no, it probably wouldn't. I don't know if Alec Baldwin, like his face... But one of the things that makes Don Rickles, you know, interesting is is the personality and the 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 speech and everything that he has. And I don't know if there are that many people who, as personalities, will be able to walk into a comic and just be a person. 
Well, maybe maybe, uh, maybe you throw in like maybe, a Kim Kardashian or somebody like that. I don't know. Yeah, or I mean, I would love to see Stephen Colbert or John Oliver or someone like that walk into a comic. Um, but you know, one of the big differences between 1971 and today is that we just have so much media that one person who's really big in some circles of the audience might be almost unheard of in other circles of the audience. Mm-hmm. Whereas in 1971, you had your three networks and that was your TV. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Don Rickles would be appearing or made appearances on, you know, I Dream of Genie and The Munsters mm. and countless other TV shows. A lot shows. more people watched the individual shows because there were just so many fewer shows to watch. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, yeah, definitely. The audiences were larger and, and you know, the fame of these people was more focused than it is now. No question about yeah. it. But I still don't know, you know, who is your target audience in 1971? 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 8-year-olds? I'm not sure. Uh, but probably somewhere in that range. And is Don Rickles going to be a draw for them? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like you probably have some college readers by this point i think um in the 60s i've done a lot to, to expand comics to the college high school and college crew but how much of the audience were there versus your hmm. 13 and under crowd i don't know because i think we're still in the era where your, your primary audience for comics is younger teens and under yeah you have older readers but they're not your main readers and then you know i i, I would be remiss if I don't mention, you know, I, I love Kirby's work. Uh, apparently they did regularly have someone else pencil over uh, Jimmy Olsen's face and Superman's face to make them more on, uh, on the mark for, you know, the, uh, the image that was standard for the, for the company. Cause Kirby's faces, you know, were a little different. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I, I landed on page 12 uh, of the story and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, boy, this is really terribly inked. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at that now. I I do not have as much of an eye for inking styles. Um, you know, I hear people talk about Vince Coletta. And I, I'd be curious to see how this compared to the pencils or how another inker might have done it. But you, some of that first panel, some of those faces are just really, really off. You know, and I, I didn't look at it closely enough, but yeah, it's it's kind of hard to look at actually. Yeah, and and uh, you know, if you do a search, if you do a Google search, you could find places where they compare the inking to the pencils on, and certainly with Vince Coletta, they show a lot. And and we've gone back and forth because we think Vince Coletta is a very talented artist, uh, and by we I meant Scott and I because we've talked about Vince Coletta on many occasions, uh, but he built his reputation on being fast when they needed somebody to get it done quickly he got it done and sometimes he did so at the expense of the artwork by actually erasing some of the pencils in the background and just kind of making them blank uh and that that to me you know with jack herbie penciling that's a that's like a sin uh mm-hmm. so so that really disturbs me but again i do think coletta was a very talented artist when he brought his a-game when he had the time to dedicate to actually you know, make it look as nice as he could. He he was very, very talented. This page to me, and I, I pulled this one out because I do think it's the probably the worst page in the book as far as the inking goes. 
Although uh, I, I do see some other shots that I could compare it to. Uh, but this, you know, a page on a whole, I think this is the worst one. And I think it looks to me like he rushed right through it. Then, you know, he, he gave no, no thought to actually, you know, I, I always liked when they called the inker the embellisher. You know, Stan, Stan would give that title to a lot of the inkers in the books. And, you know, I, I remember as a kid, well, the first time I read that, I didn't know what embellish meant. And I asked my dad, you know, what does that mean? And, and he says, well, that means to make it better, to, you know, to improve upon it. And I was like, so what is that? So, you know, like I, I couldn't conceive of, okay, that means it's the anchor. You know, it didn't. But but I, I really latched onto that term that when an anchor is doing his job right, he's embellishing the art. He's improving it. And he's not necessarily putting his own stamp of his own style on it, but he's he's cleaning up what needs to be cleaned up. And he's adding a little detail where it needs to be added. And he's not erasing backgrounds. And he's not just, you know, throwing India ink on the page, you know, haphazardly. This page looks to me like a lot of it's thrown on haphazardly, and I don't see any backgrounds in panels two, three, four, and five at all. So I'm yeah. So I'm I'm thinking that that's that is, this is I'm thinking this page is a uh, an example of a Coletta Hatchet job, to be honest with you. Uh, there are a lot of panel. I, I, I'm just paging through, thinking about backgrounds as I go, and there's a lot of places where they're just. And even places, even in some places where they're drawn, they're not colored. Like I'm looking at page ten. In page ten, three of the four panels have backgrounds, but in two of them, the backgrounds are just single color, uh, and it's it's kind of bizarre. Hmm. But a lot of places, yeah, just completely erase. Assuming that Kirby drew them, they're not there anymore. Well, you look at the second panel on that page. There is the slightest background of of Don Rickles' chair. Right. So I'm thinking. Yeah, that's, I'm, that's, so I said three out of four. So that, that that's that's the fourth one that doesn't have but it. But that's I'm looking at that and thinking, yeah, he probably erased what was behind that. Yeah, because Kirby does take the time to draw all of the computer detail in, on the ship in the bottom two panels, and he does the bookcases in the first panel. So is he really going to do nothing on the second panel? No, no potted plant, no nothing. Yeah, I, I don't see that. And and when you see pages of Kirby's pencils, you know, there's there's always detail in the background. He he very rarely threw a panel with nothing like that. And there's so many in this book that I'm thinking we have to have a ra- racing going on. I'm I'm doing so, doing a quick Google search to see if I can find any pencils on on this. Uh, I I could I, I see the pencils of the cover actually. Uh, but I'm looking to see if they show any of the pages that we're talking about, because that would be great to compare, but I'm not finding them. Should I share some thoughts? Sure, absolutely. So things I liked. Um, I really, really liked the use of the Guardian. Uh, he is one of those you know, lower-tier DC characters that I really enjoy, mostly because of his ties to the Superman myth. This, um, uh, they call him the Golden Guardian sometimes in this i don't know exactly why they did that because originally he was the guardian in the 40s and he was the golden guardian in this era and i don't really know why um but you know i like him the the dna experimental project that kirby uses here that is later renamed as the cadmus project where they revived the idea in the late 80s uh is is a neat element of this sort of corner of the DC universe doesn't really play into the storyline that much in this issue, 
but you do see um, the Newsboy Legion and their parents, a.k.a. the original Newsboy Legion that they're the clones of, uh, you see them in the previous issue. In fact, this is Guardian's first time to be out and about on a mission in public. He's left the uh, uh, the DNA project to go do some stuff. Um, I I think that the two Don Rickleses is delightfully ridiculous. Like, there's no reason that this should be a story, but <laughs> I did enjoy it. I did enjoy Rickles's uh, frustration with being in a superhero comic he didn't like the fact that there was all this explosive action and people trying to stop themselves from blowing up and everything else is like why did i come to this office you know if, if if you're trying to get me to sign a contract to do some shows with you why why is this what's happening and then meeting his look-alike and um and the look-alike there's nothing special about him he is just a guy who works at GBS who happens to look and talk like Don Rickles, whose name is also Rickles. Uh, and he's wearing a silly costume because people in the office that morning said, hey, you should wear this today. It'll be good for a laugh. And so he's got this cape and costume on for no reason. And it's it's ridiculous, but I think it works for the tone of this story. Um. You know, I, I think that works. So things that worked for me less were the the actual plot structure with everything going on around the characters. Clark Kent is in space because Morgan Edge wanted to kill him. So he lured him to a spaceship that was on a beeline to Apocalypse. So the only reason Clark Kent doesn't die on Apocalypse is, A, because he's Superman. And if he had landed there, he wouldn't die. But also Light Ray randomly saves him because Light Ray is cruising their star system and sees his ship. is like, huh, what's this? And sees Clark and says, okay, well, I'll just send you home back to Earth then. And does. Um, the stuff with Jimmy and um, Goody Rickles being about to explode it isn't really explained in any way. I mean, it's given an explanation there. Like, they've been doused with a chemical that's going to make them explode. But, like, um, it's just kind of a device to make everything else happen. It's not actually important in and of itself. Um but, you know, some of those things are just kind of artifacts of the way that Kirby would tell his stories. When you're reading Kirby stories in the 70s, sometimes stuff just happens because. <laughs> and again, that's where I say Kirby needed somebody, you know, to ground him a little bit because his, yeah. his his ideas were so far out and they're wonderful. But he needed somebody just to ground it a little bit, just to give you a little bit more logic and a little bit more of a narrative flow. What I would love, and I had this thought as I was reading through all this fourth world stuff for the first time a few years ago, is I would love for someone who loves the Kirby fourth world to do a podcast about the Kirby fourth world. And I think that like going through some of these issues and tying them together, because they call it the fourth world saga. It doesn't really read like a saga. It reads like separate series that have some common elements. Um, and I wish it were a little bit more interconnected for it to be the fourth world saga. But, you know, that's OK. That's just that's just how he told the story. Um, Morgan Edge talks about ugly Mannheim several times and his involvement. In the story is never really made clear because most of it was last issue. I don't think we even actually see ugly Mannheim in this. Um, but 
even though I'm pulling out all these critiques in the moment reading the story, I had a good time because Kirby really draws you in to each individual page. Uh, it's just when you get to the end, you sit back and think, okay, now what just happened? <laughs> and it's like, I don't know that entirely holds together as well as it's supposed to. <laughs> no, it, it absolutely does not, unfortunately. But there's, there's, there's a, to me, uh, when I see Kirby's work, at least, you know, pre-1980, you know, the stuff that came out in the 80s was, you know, an aging Kirby who didn't really, you know, he, he wasn't he wasn't being the same creative guy that he was when he was younger. Uh, mm-hmm. But when, you know, you see him with Stan creating the Marvel Universe and creating certainly the Marvel Cosmic Universe uh, out of his... You know, you you know, you got to give him a lot of credit for for the things that he he came up with then. Oh yeah. And then in the seventies, you know, he goes over to DC and you see what he did with the the fourth world. And then he comes back to Marvel and, you know, it, it may not have had the same splash, but what he did with the Eternals and you know things like that. Uh, that there's so many little grains of good ideas, you know, in OMAC and things. There's just so much going on that I love all of that stuff. Uh, even the, even, even when ideas. you read it and you're scratching your head afterwards, I still just love that stuff. And so many of those ideas have been taken by other creators and like built and grown. And I mean, the DC universe is still fueled by elements from Kirby's Fourth World. Oh yeah. You know, the, he he planted some some dark seeds, if you will, that have really you know grown into major driving stuff in the justice league film both of its versions uh was you know driven by fourth world elements um the the whole justice league relaunch in 2011 uh was fueled for 52 issues you know by elements of fourth world and you know that stuff is there i've been reading through i haven't really said it yet on this ish, on this podcast but um i've read a lot of superman I, I've heard rumors. To I, I've effect. been reading through. Yeah, <laughs> I've been reading through all of the Superman. I started at Action Comics one a decade. It didn't change ago, and I've read every Superman comic through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and I'm in the last year of the 80s. And you know, since it has its roots in Superman, I've been reading all the Fourth World stuff as I've gone along because it's to be Superman adjacent. And there's a lot of really cool stuff that has come out of that. And um, the, the series that ran in 1989 and later is where I am right now. And I'm really enjoying that, but like Orion and um, you know, his being born of the evil world, but raised by the good world. And can he find it in himself to be, you know, less like his father, even though that's his inclination, you know, that's, that's some really good drama. Um, And, and yeah, so I'm not at all panning his creations. I just think that they're kind of quirky at times. And I I would love to hear someone's thoughts as they go through the entire saga and like pull out what really works and talk about that and maybe explain some of the stuff that doesn't work as well if you really pay attention to the details, how is it actually all fitting together, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I, you know, just to, to kind of build on even what you were saying there, uh, you're seeing the same thing with, with Marvel too, because uh, a lot of what we're getting, even in the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, was was you know based on Kirby things, uh, even things that he didn't necessarily write. 
he still had a had a hand in you know guardians of the galaxy and and what you know jim starlin did with those characters uh you know all the cosmic characters warlock and and uh, captain marvel and all of that you know a, most of that is has its roots in what kirby started with the kree and you know in the fantastic four uh mm-hmm. you know and and it and it built from there so what you did was you know what he did was he he didn't plant the seed because he cultivated it but he eventually walked away and then other people built upon what he did and it's the same with marvel as it is with dc as far as that goes i just think he he left marvel with more uh than he left dc with uh right you know so that so that there's just so much there i mean you know between uh you know like i said the 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 Cree and the inhumans and the way he tied it together and you know i still have to always tip my hat to stan too because stan you know did a marvelous job of making it all make sense uh which which again when kirby was was unfettered it didn't necessarily make so much sense although i i, I still love it i you know i i point to uh you know, when Kirby took over the Black Panther, you know, he had previously been in uh, Jungle Action where, uh, you know, the, the stories were, were very, uh, not necessarily grounded, but, but you know, there was some serious stuff going on there talking about racism and, and the Ku Klux Klan and things like that. And, and then Kirby took over and they, you know, came out with Black Panther number one. And, you know, what did he do? He came up with these frogs that can transport you to places. And you know, It's like, really? This is where you're going with this? Uh, but, but I love it just the same. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a total change of pace. And, it, you know, he totally disregarded everything that went before it. But it's still great stuff. Uh, you know, or, or, and Kirby did love his uh, he did love his ancient civilizations that have you know reawakened in the modern era. Yeah, the, the basically the chariots of the gods was uh, Kirby's you know thing, uh, you know, with, with the the Eternals and the fourth world. I mean, you could see that the that the Eternals is kind of recreating uh, the new gods in its own way. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's not that he ran out of ideas, but that he just you know. I, I think I think he was an endless source of ideas, to be honest with you, uh, and, and I, I marvel at it. And you know, no pun intended there. Uh, and so even when I read an issue like this, which you know has so much silliness in it, I just get a big kick out of it, and I and I really enjoy it. And I look at his artwork, and when I look at the artwork that I don't like where it's inked, I try to look and and, and to be able to see the pencils through the inking. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's something I have to consciously do, but I think I've developed a little bit of a skill at doing that over the years. Uh, before I started podcasting, I didn't have anywhere near the appreciation for pencils versus inks that I do now. Uh, and a lot of it came from when we would criticize artwork in a book, and then we would find the penciled page that hadn't been inked yet and saw, wow, this is so much better than what the final product is. Right. So, you know, it makes me really look at, you know, look, look at the artwork a lot more closely than I used to. And, and I, I think I'm better for it. And I enjoy doing that. And especially with somebody like Kirby, because his pencils almost always, even when he's inked by somebody who really does a nice job with it, I think his pencils usually exceed the final product. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and I've mentioned in the past and it just kills me that, uh, in the 1970s, uh, when we went to some comic shows, 
uh, before people realized what the value of them were, people were selling original art pages by Kirby for, you know, $30, $40. And wow. I didn't buy any because I would have rather spent my $40 to buy, you know, 70 comics, uh, you know, all of questionable value. Uh, whereas I, I, had I purchased two or three pages of that back then, I don't even think I would have used it for the, uh, you know, the increased value. I think I would just love to own them, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, it, it's one of the things that, that I look back on in my, you know, early comic book collecting days that, you know, I wish I had, I wish, I wish I could tap my younger self on the shoulder now and tell him, tell him buy this, you know. The, the other you misspent youth. The other thing I did, you know, like one of the books that, and I've talked about this in the past too, but one of the books that I really geared on, you know, my favorite book was Spider-Man, and I started buying it at issue 131, and when I started to amass back episodes, back issues, I worked my way back. I had 131. Now I need to get 130. Now I need to get 129. Now I need to get 128, and I eventually have a solid run. You know, for as long as I was collecting, eventually I stopped. But uh, from issue 48 on, and from 1 to 48, I probably have about 15 of those issues, you know, in scattered, oh, wow. scattered uh, numbers. But had I had the foresight or the, the understanding of how the industry works, it would have been much, much smarter to focus on, hey, can I get a copy of issue number one? Can I save up and get that and then get issue number mm -hmm. two and, and work my way up that way instead of the reverse of it? Because back then they were more affordable. And, right. and, and I would own books that I, I don't dream of owning now. So, you know, those are my regrets. You don't, you don't expect the prices to go so much. I, I saw I saw an issue of uh, a copy of Basic Spider-Man 1 in the comic shop when I was young for $1,400. And to me, that was, you know, a fortune mm -hmm. to spend on a simple comic. And of course, $1,400 in the 80s, early 90s, is not inflation equivalent to what those books go for now. But I would never have imagined the comics would go for what they go for now as far as those early number ones and such. Yeah, well, I, I one year I went to New York Comic Con and they had a uh, graded version of Amazing Fantasy 15 and I think it was like $4,000 for like a, you know, a five graded. Uh, and then the next year I went back and I found an issue graded of Amazing Fantasy number 15 and it was rated like a 3.5 and it was going for like $7,500. So the value was going up even for lesser quality issues. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, it, it just continues to do so. Uh, the only thing, you know, I, I knew I was never going to have the, the, the disposable income to purchase that book, but I did ask the man, you know, the, the man running the booth, would it be okay if I held it for a moment? And it was, you know, graded and slabbed, so there wasn't really any risk of my damaging it. But I did manage to get a picture of myself holding Amazing Fantasy number 15, uh, which, you know, that's as close as I'm ever going to come to owning it. So I'll, I'll just have to be happy with that. Well, um, I don't know if I have a whole lot else to say on this. Uh, I can definitely see where Clark's face has been redrawn. Um, I hadn't thought about Jimmy's face, but yeah, his face seems to be out of character with the other faces in the book as well. Uh, it's it's really easy to see when you have a sort of nondescript face like Morgan Edge next to Clark and Jimmy, 
just the style of, of faces is, is, is very, very different. You can tell that it's different artists. Yeah. This was, um, this is where the issue became giant sized for a while and started running backups behind the main story. And they even do an introductory page where Jack Kirby uh, has drawn a portrait of himself drawing uh, at a, at a, uh, you know, art stand. And so they run the first issue of the newsboy Legion from star spangled seven in the backup here. But they would do this for a long time after this. They would run Sandman strips, Newsboy Legion strips, and the Sandman era where he's in the superhero costume, not the uh, not the noir gas mask looking Sandman. Um, but for a, a, a long time, even after Kirby leaves the book, they would run Kirby backups in this series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and yet, you know, I don't think those have in any way affected the value of the books. I think the value of the book is based upon the main stories and, uh, you know, the fact that they're bigger, I don't think has added to the value. Uh, you know, I think they're more valuable based on the fact that, you know, this is Kirby creating the fourth world. Yeah. Yeah. Now the, and even a reader of the day paying more for a larger book, you can't get reprints of this stuff the way you could nowadays. So it was considered, you know, valuable old stories at the time, but, especially nowadays where reprints and other forms of getting old stories are so easy. This, uh, if, if Jimmy Olsen 141 has any value to it, it's not because of the Newsboy Legion backup. It's because it's a Kirby fourth world issue with Don Rickles <laughs> times two. And it, and it just doesn't stop being funny. Uh, <laughs> so to, to rate this one, I'm going to say the cover is just striking in its, strangeness to me with the running with the Don Rickles image. Uh, and yet it made me want to get it. So I don't know if it would make a young person want to get it, but it certainly made me want to get it. And I'm glad that I own this one. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to give it a skewed B just because I don't think it really is a B image, but it just is so striking to me that I have to give it a higher grade than I think the artwork actually calls for. Uh, the interior art, uh, I got to drop it down some just because I really don't care for the inking on it. Uh, I think it's, 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 it's lazily inked. I think even, you know, images of the faces where, you know, where the background does exist, I, I see the faces. It looks like he rushed through them uh, and, and that they're a little sloppy. And Morgan Edge looks like he's cross-eyed, and I, I don't like that. Um, I'm, I'm going to say a, a C-plus on the interior art, and that is not a reflection on Kirby. It is a reflection on, on Vinnie Coletta. Uh, and the story is just bonkers, uh, but in its own way, it's fun. Uh, it's very hard to grade it because from a pure narrative point of view, I think the story fails, but historically, and just from a kind of have fun while you're reading it, if you can not try and take it too seriously, it is an enjoyable read. So I'm going to say a C plus on the story as well, and I'm going to just give the book a C plus overall. That's basically where I am. I, you know, when I'm reading things, I'm always focusing on the stuff that I enjoy, and so I don't tend to look too critically at stuff. I just, you know, have fun with it as I'm in the moment. But if I were to really look at this um, and judge it, uh, I think the the cover is definitely an eye grabber. Um, you know, this stands out in the Kirby fourth world covers 
because it's Superman and Guardian running a medallion of John Rickles at, at the at the audience. You know, it's just like I don't know I don't know why this exists, but it certainly does its job of getting your attention. And so I'm going to go with a B on the cover as well. Um, and I think that there is a B story being told, but it's it it does have some structural issues and the, the story is here to focus on Don Rickles's personality. And that takes up a lot of, a lot of real estate in the issue. Um, like you said, it doesn't always come off as feeling like Don Rickles. It feels like somebody wanting to try to be Don Rickles. Uh, and so that, and the structural issues of just how things, you know, connect and fold together, bring it down a bit. So I'm going to go with the C on the story as well. Uh, I actually enjoyed the art. Hearing what you say about about Vince Coletta's inking, I, I can see it. I can see the problems. They're just not things that I personally think about while I'm reading it. And so, um, to me, the the face work brings it down a little bit to a B, um, but I do I did actually enjoy the art I think more than the story on this, so that's where I'm going to be with it overall. Um, overall, a B minus on this book. No, we're we're not too far apart on it, just the same. Uh, so that that's. I, I always enjoy looking at books like this and, you know, I try not to focus too much on the negative. Uh, I've seen a couple of people post on Facebook, like, you know, and I've seen, you know, mail view, uh, listener mail occasionally where it's like, you know, why, why bother reviewing a book that you don't like, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, you know, we, we do do kind of a random thing here with the books. So, you know, if you're going to be honest, sometimes you're not going to like the books. That's just the nature of the 500 beast. plus issues, you know, it's hard to bring out stuff you haven't, A, haven't done before, and B, really, really enjoy. And then, you know, you take an issue like this, and I can tell you, I, I, I enjoy the heck out of this book, and I'm glad I own it. But if I'm going to review it, I'm going to try and give you an honest opinion on it. I'm not going to just sugarcoat it and say, oh, everything is beautiful in its own way. You know, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, these, these are the things I think are pluses. These are the things that I think are minuses. Uh, you know, the fact that I, I rated it, you know, it was two minutes ago and I'm already forgetting what I gave it a C plus. Uh, mm. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad book. I'm, I'm very happy that I own this book. Uh, but it's just, you know, you, you try to be objective when you look at it and you try to look at what what is quality and what isn't quality uh so that's you know that's how this this plays out for me uh, and i hope you know people who listen actually appreciate that aspect of it that it's you know you're not getting just uh, a you know an effort to make everything sound great uh, you know i'm going to tell it like it is at least in, in my mind uh and and my favorite jack kirby is 1940s jack kirby and if you if you can pair the work in the front half of this book with the reprint in the back half look at the faces look at the faces of all of the characters and just how much work he puts into making them look unique and expressive and kind of ugly all the time mm -hmm. and you get a little bit of that with his work on don rickles in the first half uh which i think may be marred by coletta's inking but it's just 
there's some really solid face work in the back story of this. And it's just, it's interesting to compare the two, the Jack Kirby we had in the forties versus it. And you mentioned earlier, like Jack Kirby in the eighties is starting to get older. Jack Kirby in the sixties and seventies wasn't young. No, no, he wasn't, but he was still <laughs> so, doing so by the time. He, yeah. He was still doing quality work. I think he'd found a lot of shortcuts in his, in his art, which is not a problem. It's just a difference. But yeah, by the time you get to the eighties, the Jack Kirby that we're dealing with there is like an elderly Jack Kirby, not just an older Jack Kirby. And he was at his prime when he was writing stuff, drawing stuff in the forties. And I think it shows in the back issue here. Yeah, I don't question that. But I, you know, and you, you, you know, we're going back to make ours Marvel again. Uh, Kirby circa the introduction of Galactus. Uh, that era of Kirby uh, on on Fantastic Four and on Thor is probably my favorite Kirby. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's a um, an exchange of mental juices between the creative idea side of Kirby versus the drafting drawing side of Kirby. Like the 1940s were not huge cosmic scale ideas there's a lot of ideas and there's a lot of creativity but the, the kind of juices they were you know putting into comics in the 40s were different but yeah when you get to the 60s you get to galactus that's a kirby who is like bringing in creativity in a way that he had not done in his career before and and you know my own personal tastes the images were very clean uh but dynamic too you know he combined that so well that I, I I love that era of Kirby, and I um, I appreciate all eras, including elderly Kirby, uh, in its own way. But elderly Kirby, you could see, uh, you know, things got a little sloppy sometimes, and you know it was it's a little sad in its own way. But I still enjoy it. But all that said, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on with me tonight, John. This was this was fun, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I really did uh, enjoy getting the chance to revisit this issue. Um, and like I said, someone out there in listener land, if you like to podcast and you like the fourth world, dig into that stuff. I'll listen. And so will I. Uh, but in the meanwhile, while we're waiting for that, where can they listen to you otherwise? So as I said earlier, I've read a lot of Superman. And uh, last summer, I got to the end of pre-crisis Superman. I got to 1985. And so I was trying to figure out some way to commemorate the occasion, and I decided to do what I do, and I make a podcast about it. Um, so beginning January 3rd of this year, I started releasing the episodes. The show is called Superman in Crisis, and what I'm doing is every episode I talk about the Superman comics that hit shelves on that date 37 years earlier in 1985. So we're doing every issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths and every Superman family adventure comic book uh, that was released alongside them. And then after Crisis wraps in December, I will continue on with the Superman books until pre-Crisis Superman does his one song in June with whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. So um, you are the only stories from this era that I had read before were the Crisis issues. So basically you're getting a Superman fan who's read 50 years of Superman comics leading up to this, his first takes on all the Superman adventures 
that are being published alongside Crisis. And so that is Superman in Crisis. Uh, it comes out most weeks. The only time there's not an episode is whenever there was not a Superman comic that week. Uh, and that is uh, on any good podcatcher as well as at johnreadscomics.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at johnreadscomics. There is no H in John. There you go. And I, I actually was unaware of where, where your current work was coming out. And while you were describing it, I was subscribing to it. Oh, well, thank you. So, you know, I, I've, I've had my lack of John since uh, since my cars Marvel stopped. So now I will have my, my fix. <laughs> uh, but again, thanks for coming on. I'm actually, since that's, oh, sorry. I've actually been thinking about what's going to come next because I produced all those episodes last summer and fall. And so I'm just, you know, slapping the stuff on them and putting them up uh, you know, each week. I've actually been starting to think about what I want to do next. And I think my next project is also going to be Superman related. And I've been, I've been toying with ideas. So that is where my brain currently is, is figure out what's going to come after June of 2023. I'm going to give your brain another project for the next time you come on here, which, uh, uh-huh. you know, I'm not sure exactly when that's going to be, but it shouldn't be too, too long. Uh, I want you to figure out what books you didn't get to on Make Ours Marvel that you really wanted to. Okay. Figure out a couple of sing- single like issues that you wish you had gotten to. And we'll, we'll cover yeah. those. That sounds good. That sounds good. Right. Meanwhile, let's make that. Soon. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And uh, everybody who's listening, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll catch you next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show. And we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact back to the bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at two true or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks. And we'll see you next week.